If you will, turn to Numbers and chapter 11 once again. Numbers chapter 11. This morning we want to look at the subject in this uh, particular chapter of be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. Now last week uh, we uh, found a very discouraged and depressed Moses, overwhelmed by his circumstances and the complaints of the people. Moses wished that he would rather die than go all the way that he was heading, overwhelmed by his problems. Israel, on the other hand, wanted a new menu. They didn't like the the menu. They wanted a new one. And here in this passage, we find the importance of being careful what you pray for. God is going to answer Moses' prayer for help and Israel's prayer for meat. And we're going to see that Moses' answered prayer will be a blessing and an encouragement, but Israel's answered prayer will be a curse, reminding us that we need to be careful for what we pray for. So notice, first of all, the gathering of helpers. Look here in in chapter 11 and verse 16 and 17, that uh, it says this, "And And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me the seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and the officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take the spirit which is upon thee and put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And then skip down with me just for a moment here to verse 24. Verse 24 says, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto him, and took the spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the other name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went out, went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, was one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? And Moses got him into the camp, and he and the elders of Israel. Now remember last week we talked about Moses being very discouraged, and he was in a dilemma. And God's solution for Moses' dilemma was to help him out and give him support. Seventy leaders were picked to assist Moses, and these men were already doing a good job, and they were in leadership. God is looking for men of character today, just like these men. 
Uh, The Spirit of God gave to Moses, he gave to these men as well. They prophesied at the tabernacle, giving praise to God without any prior training at all, according to verse 25. And this did not diminish Moses' power. Uh, The light of a candle is not diminished when it's used to light other candles. But here we have two men that were not at the tabernacle, but they also prophesied. And this upset a young man that we're now introduced to by the name of Joshua. Joshua wanted Moses to stop these men, but Moses was thrilled. He was not jealous. Moses was demonstrating an attitude that when it comes to serving God and glorifying him, it's not a competition. We're not in competition with others. And so he didn't feel that he had a corner on God's power. And the Bible clearly teaches us that we are one family in Christ. We should be thrilled when any church preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and believes the word of God. Now, notice I said, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many so-called churches today that are preaching another gospel. It may be the gospel of good works, maybe the gospel of social, the social gospel, or the gospel of feeling or entertainment. But if God sends a revival in another church and not in ours, well, they say, praise God for that. We don't need to be jealous of what God is doing in another work. We're not competing with one another, but we are to be encouraging one another. Why is it that we feel we have to be the biggest and the best many times? Well, I don't believe we're the biggest church in our town. I don't believe that we ever, I've ever heard that being a goal of our, our, our church. But some places you always, uh, you find that Well, we want to be the biggest church. We want to be the fastest growing one. Uh, If it's the biggest or fastest growing, then uh, why would we have to advertise that? Why would we say that in an advertisement? Some churches have done that. Fastest growing uh, church in America or something like that. Does that make that church better than someone else's? The answer certainly is no. Now, maybe you've heard of churches that claim to be the fastest growing in such and such town or such and such state. Another teacher and I used to travel, especially in the summer. We would sing. We would preach in churches all across Wisconsin, sometimes in Illinois and Michigan. And it seemed that often we were invited to banquets or we would go for the whole day and someone would take us out to eat or they would have a fellowship dinner like we're having this afternoon. And uh, pretty soon we started calling ourselves the fastest growing gospel duet in the state of Wisconsin. Because we were uh, eating. But our goal was not to be the biggest or or the greatest. Our goal was to preach the whole counsel of God's word, seek people Uh, that people would be saved and growing in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, it says, For we dare not make 
make ourselves of, a, of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Philippians 1.15 says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And so we are to beware of putting limits on God. God can work through whomever he wants. God wants to work through you. He wants to work through me if we're willing, if we're available, and we're obedient to him. We can have revival in our lives every day if we'd have this attitude. A revival is not something that we conjure up, work up, organize up for a one week of the year. Our desire should have revival every day. And so here we have, first of all, the gathering of helpers. Moses needed help, help, and so there were those who gave help, and the Lord instructed him in this way. Secondly, we see in this passage the guarantee of the Lord. See this in verses 18 through 20, a portion which we uh, uh, skipped over here a moment ago. But in verse 18 it says, And say thou unto the people, Sanctify thyself against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, and therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out of your nostrils and be loathsome to you because ye have despised the Lord which is among you and have wept before him saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? I want you to notice here there's first of all the abundance. The abundance. God says, you want flesh? Okay, I'll give you flesh. But I'm not going to give it to you for one or two or five or ten or even twenty days. I'm going to give it to you for a whole month. But secondly, notice the abhorrence. The flesh will come out of your nostrils and be loathsome. In other words, they would have so much, excuse me, they would vomit it up. Disgusting, right? That's what the Bible tells us. It's loathsome. It's disgusting. That's right. It would be loathsome or disgusting to them. This is the first time we find this word used in the Bible. It's used in connection of getting our own way, doing our own will, and not God's. And this is a theme that continues throughout the Bible. Getting your own way many times ends up being loathsome and disgusting. Just ask Adam and Eve and uh, ask King David, ask Achan, ask Jacob if getting your own, own way is always fun. If, if it's always the greatest thing that ever happened to you. No, their own way became loathsome, disgusting. When we reject God's perfect plan and his will, 
What was it for these people? It was manna. They got sick and tired of manna. They, uh, they couldn't uh, figure out. They, they used all the thousand and one recipes for manna and they ran out of recipes. And they got sick and tired of manna. So they began to complain again. And so we find our alternative plan then is nauseous, undesirable, sorrowful, disgusting. Not only to ourselves, but to God. Did you know that God will sometimes let a person have his or her own way as a judgment upon that person who rejects God's way? We read about it in Psalm 106, verse 14 and 15. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul. In Numbers chapter 11, the answer to their prayers was not a blessing, but a curse. They were ungrateful to the Lord, and they rejected him. They were ungrateful. Remember the prodigal son? He got his own way, and he was miserable. Israel cried out for a king instead of God. They got their king, and their nation eventually became ruined, Their nation was robbed of peace, of safety, and security. Be careful what you pray for. God does say no for a reason. He he does forbid certain things for our benefit. Israel was ungrateful for God's provision, and the Lord lets them have their own way and their own desires, and he teaches them a big lesson. Getting your own way will not always make you happy. You may find that you will get what you want, but you'll lose what you had. Think with me about others who got their own way and were unhappy. There was Lot who got wealth and prestige of Sodom. Uh, He got what he wanted and he lost his family and his home. Many parents have made the same mistake in their quest for wealth. They are gone so much that their kids never see their parents or their spouses never see one another. And this is a prescription for a troubled marriage and a troubled family. There's Samson who got his way. He got the wild woman he wanted and he lost his strength. He lost his sight. He lost his freedom and he lost eventually his life. Jacob got Esau's blessing that he coveted, but he lost the fellowship of his mother. He fled for his life and he never saw her again. He let things grip his life and it robbed him of peace and joy. That's ironic because most people believe that things will give them peace and joy. There was Gehazi. He got the forbidden wealth of Naaman. And he lost his own health and got leprosy. There was David who got Bathsheba. He had his fling with this beautiful woman, but he lost his peace and blessing of the Lord on his home. Peace may not seem to be a big deal, but it is when you realize you've lost it. Immorality leads to misery and guilt, and if you fool around, you're the fool. Be careful what you pray for. People tell God, well, just leave me alone. And one day he will. And if you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior this morning, you're going to die and go to hell, and you'll be left alone forever. Thirdly, we see the argument 
They despised the Lord, saying, Why are we here? We were better off in Egypt, in bondage. I'm sure this made the Lord feel good after all he had done for them. Right? Sure. God's people were ungrateful and rebellious. And when we get this way, we get ourselves into trouble. And so we have the guarantee of the Lord. Thirdly, we have the groaning of Moses. Look at verse 21 through 23. And Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh, that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Moses was complaining. He was full of doubt because he was leaning upon his own understanding. You know, we get in trouble when we do this. Moses was trying to figure out, how is the Lord going to give flesh? Are we going to have to kill all of our flocks and all of our our livestock so we can eat? What's going to happen then? Psalm 78 verse 19 says, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? God wants us to realize that he has a way of doing the unexpected the impossible. And he wants us to trust him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Say it with me again. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Our God is able to do beyond our expectations. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. By the way, that power is not our power. It's God's power that works in us. So we have the groaning of Moses. He doubts, he complains. He leans on his own understanding. And that comes to, brings us to the gathering of the quail. Verse 30 says, And Moses got him into the camp, and he and the elders of Israel, and they went forth a wind, there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side, as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood all up all that day and all that night and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathereth least gathereth ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. Now, I don't know if you've had much experience with quail or not, but quail are weak flyers. Uh, they need to rely upon the wind to help them on their journeys. Uh, these quail, it says, uh, came uh, from, blew, blew in from the, on the wind from the sea. Well, by this time, they're exhausted. And so they fell by the camp within a day's journey. It's a 20-mile radius. Uh, their way was already m- much more difficult, and God provided 
manna a lot closer to the camp. But the quail were so thick that they ended up being two cubits high, which is about three feet deep. Some say they flew three feet high, and that's where they got knocked down. I'm not sure. Uh, I think they landed in piles three feet deep. However it was, it enabled the ones who gathered the least amount of birds to gather 10 homers. That's about 60 bushels or about 450 to 500 gallons of bird. That's a big meal, right? It's a lot of, that's a lot of bird. And the people gathered the birds all day and all night and the next day, and they were consumed with a passion for these birds. God gave them more than they asked for. Be careful what you pray for. So it brings us to the great plague. Verse 33, And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague, and he called the name of that place kibroth Hattavah. Because they were buried, they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed at Kibroth Hatia, Ava, and unto Haziaroth, and abode at Haziaroth. The desire for meat had turned into greed. They were consumed with the thought of getting more meat. And when you come, become preoccupied with something until it affects your perspective on everything else, then your desire turns to lust. These people had rejected the Lord and his provisions. He had provided them manna, but they said, that's not good enough. We want some meat. They became greedy and ungrateful. They were judged by the Lord for their attitude. Their attitude was not my will or not thy will, but my will be done. Proverbs 29.1 says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. God sent a plague upon these people, and many people died. Psalm 78, verse 30 and 31 says, They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. The word fattest there refers to the greediest, the gluttonous people. The chosen were the young and the strong men. The place where all these people died was called Kilbroth Hatteava, which means graves of craving and lust. The cravings, even of today, can destroy us if we're not careful. Look with me for a moment before we close our service this morning, why do people why do people crave today? Or I should say, what do people crave today? What is it they crave? Well, first of all, there's a craving for attention. Some folks are consumed with being popular, being famous, uh, being seen, being heard. Actually, these people are usually lonely. They have a poor attitude about themselves but they sometimes will destroy a leader or just to become a leader. Some will do anything to become popular or accepted. Maybe they'll drink or take drugs or be immoral. Maybe they'll 
uh, be upset and, and pout and fuss and scream. They're somehow, they're, they are somehow always trying to draw attention to themselves. There's the craving for attention today. Secondly, there's the craving of addictions. There are many people too today who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and tobacco and gambling and pornography. And when the list could go on and on. There's the craving of appetites. People have craving for food that causes them to be out of control. Some folks are immoral because of their sexual cravings, their appetite. Then there's the craving of affluence. People today crave money and material possessions, and this leads to major problems. And even when they accumulate so much, they're still unhappy and life is still empty. It reminds me, of uh, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen as we, uh, as we, I just uh, read a moment here from Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. It says, I made great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kind of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great. Increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought. And on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. That's God's word, but that's a, a very real testimony from Solomon. Be careful what you pray for. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Well, that's what people crave today. But notice, how does a Christian control his cravings? How does a Christian control his cravings? Just a few suggestions here this, this morning before we close. First of all, we need to comprehend that cravings corrupt. We need to understand that cravings, cravings are uh, corrupt and they destroy our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Neither let us tempt Christ as some also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Many times people say, well, I can handle it, when they usually can't. We need to realize, understand that cravings for that which is evil and harmful will ruin our lives. Have a comprehension of that. Have an understanding about cravings. 
Secondly, there are cautions about cravings. The scripture clearly cautions us about this. Again, we need to understand it. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. That's what a Christian can do. Thirdly, captivate your thoughts. Captivate or control your thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How do we do that? We fill our minds with the scripture. We read, we study, we memorize the word of God. That's how we get control of our thoughts. And then control your body. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Oh, how we need to have the Lord uh, to help us, and we need to pray for it, that we'd have the self-control that we need, that we're not mastered by sinful habits, and God would give us the power and the ability to prevent this from happening. And then there's the... Command to flee temptations. Second Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not put yourself in the path of temptations. Proverbs 4.14 and 15 says, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it and pass away. Don't even put yourself in a, in a position to be tempted by these things, these cravings. And then there are conditions for victory. You can conquer. You can control your cravings. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. When tempted, we pray for someone else. Or we do something for God. And we can be conquerors in Christ. He gives us the power over these cravings. Romans 8, 37, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so as we close this morning, ask the Lord to help change your desires. Be careful what you pray for. You know, I'm afraid our prayers too often are for things in the physical realm rather than the spiritual realm. We don't pray for spiritual strength or wisdom to live for the Lord. We pray many times for good health. Uh, We sometimes pray for rain. By the way, no one's been praying for rain lately. And I doubt if you're praying for snow. Unless you're a real ski nut, you know, you like to go skiing, then you might pray for it. But it's a physical thing. We pray for provisions for life. We pray for our, for our food and our clothing. And there's nothing wrong with praying for these things. But all too often, that's only where our focus is. We're just praying for the physical things of life. And we forget to pray for the spiritual wisdom and the strength to deal with the issues of Christian life. 
Some time ago, I heard a message that asked the question, how do we worship in communion with God? It was a tremendous message because it kind of hit the nail right on the head, so to speak. And so often, churches and ministries today are saying, in order to worship, in order to commune with God, you need to feel something. You need to do something. Maybe you need to clap your hands. Maybe you need to wave your arms in the air. You need to, to just swoon and fall on the floor and have a fit if you're really going to worship God. They say you need to speak in tongues and feel the Spirit. The Bible says, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You don't worship God with something physical. You don't worship God with entertainment. You don't worship God by feeling something. The worship and the communing with God is done through the spirit. It is something spiritual, not physical. Now I know you are here this morning physically. I hope so. Those bodies out there, breathing, warm, okay? I know we're here physically this morning, but your being here physically doesn't even constitute worship. You can sing the songs, you can pray the prayers, but if your spirit does not connect with God's spirit, then there's no worship. Listen again is 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us, how? By his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now ye have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which uh, which is of God, that ye might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What is this mind of Christ? How do we have the mind of Christ? We have his precious word. We have our Bibles. And the Lord had warned Israel that the way they treated the daily manna would be the test of their obedience to his word. In rejecting the manna, Israel really rejected God. And it was this rebellious attitude that invited the judgment of God. You know, this reminds us this morning, the way we treat God's word is the way we treat God himself. If you ignore the word, if you treat it carelessly, or you willfully disobey it, 
You're asking for the discipline of God, the judgment of God upon your life. Instead of feeding on the things of this world that bring death, let's cultivate our appetite on the holy, living word of God. I wonder this morning, what are you craving for? What do you hunger for? Ask the Lord to help change your desires if they're not in the right direction. If you're focusing on the things of this world instead of the things of God, be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. Our Father in heaven,